How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and we have finished the big book cover-to-cover series. We've taken a little break. I'm still alive. You're still alive. You're still standing. I I survived. You preached, what, 65 sermons. Yeah, I cheated on one. I did second and third John together. I, I just wanted to, you know. Detailed me. I wanted to have one on each one, but I thought, no, I can do second and third John together. So that's it. <laughs> so 65. You get and a I mean, discount. you did it in under two years, I think. Well, that would be 65 Sundays. So, But not over 65 <laughs> consecutive no, Sundays. No, no, no. There, there were took, a few starts. You took many breaks. And, I mean, that's impressive. Many? I mean, it took a oh, few. I, I mean, come on. There's Christmas. There's Easter. There's you go on vacation, all these things. And... That's probably faster than you going through Romans verse by verse, which you've never quite I never finished. finished. Yeah, I, so. got to, I got to chapter six where I say, do not go on, and I stopped. <laughs> wow. What a great principle and application mm-hmm. from that passage. Okay, so we're starting a new series today, which you are very excited about because it's your current thing. You get into certain books or people or topics, and you get really excited, and you drill real far down, and that's... That's what we're doing right now is we're sharing kind of some of the stuff that you're doing in your personal study. So yes. tell us about it. So about whenever COVID started, we... 18 years ago? Yeah, 18, 25 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, I put together a reading group using like a Zoom program called WebEx. And I picked a bunch of really smart guys. And I said, let's read Augustine's Confession. And we it took us a long time to get through that. And then we did some C.S. Lewis things, and then I said, look, we've got to do something on history. And my dear friend, professor, mentor in some respect, Dr. John Hanna, who's taught at Dallas Seminary for 50 years and counting, um, has put together this two-volume set. And it's a cumbersome title called Invitation to Church History and then Small Letter World. Second volume, Invitation to Church History, Small Word America. So it's a two-volume set, actually for size of the thing. It's a massive text. But anyway, my, my thesis for this was I'm watching a church in our 2021 that doesn't teach the Bible. They don't know their American history. They don't know their world history. They don't know historical theology. And people are making decisions now driven on social media, knee-jerk comments and responses that's driving me bananas. And I'm going, you people don't understand what you're saying when you think we should be socialistic or whatever. So part of it came out of personal study and part of it came out of a want to educate people because we used to talk about these things in churches. And the idea of a biblical, theological, historical view, it's important. And I I don't think people understand this. Now, when you say history, everybody is bored. So it'll be my job and our guest's job to uh, make it more interesting, but I'm still maintain. I, I don't think you could ask the question in probably your church, wherever people go, can you name the three branches of government? 
how those individuals are in those branches of government, how long they serve, what what powers do they have over the other two? I don't think people can answer any of those questions. I think if you've got um, parents of middle schoolers, they probably can tell you, or homeschool moms. Well, homeschool, I would get, yeah, homeschool tutorial. <laughs> if you're helping your child yeah, with homework. Yeah, or classical can... <laughs> education, but if you're in a public school system or you're not helping your child with his or her homework, I don't know that adults could answer those questions. No, I know. I know, I know that's what I you're saying. I really don't yeah. think they could. Yeah. A lot can't. Yeah. So that said, how much more important is biblical history? Yeah. So after we finished the big book, it seemed fitting, Theophilus, totally. that we would put this together in a format that would say, let's think biblically, historically, theologically in a package. So we've got Dr. John Hanna. We've got our friend, Dr. Phil Carey, who's agreed to come back on and other guests will bring in the not too distant future. And I won't make it real long. We'll, we'll keep it to a manageable number of broadcasts, but yep, that's the plan. All right. Well, let's dive into your first conversation with Dr. John Hanna. Dr. John Hanna, has enjoyed a distinguished career for more than 40 years at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a frequent and popular, I'll underline the word popular, conference and church speaker, both at home and abroad. His teaching interests are, well, let's just say they're a lot wider than his Vita says. It says the history of the Christian church. He likes these guys named Jonathan Edwards and John Owens, which I've never heard him talk about. He's recently published a history of Dallas Seminary, and I am in possession of the two-volume books. They can't see it on our podcast, John, but I'm holding precious books, Invitation to Church History World and Invitation to Church History America. But before we go there, Bachelor of Science at Philadelphia College of the Bible in 1967. I was 10 years old, John. Just encourage your heart. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> THM from Dallas Seminary in 1971, THD, that's a doctorate of theology, also at Dallas, 1974, an MA at Southern Methodist University in 1980, that's 41 years ago, a PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas, and postdoctoral fellowships at Yale University. He's written a whole lot of books. He teaches a whole lot of courses. I'm not going to take more time. We'll have his information on the show notes below the podcast. Dr. John Hanna, thanks for doing this, my friend. Happy. Happy to do it. You're a prince. Well, before we look at these two books, I need to tell a couple of John Hanna stories. And my favorite one is when you graciously went with me to Israel the first time in the mid-90s, probably 93, 4, 5, somewhere in there. And I had never gone, and we took a busload from our church in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and you tolerated me for 10 days as we slogged around Israel, and you taught me to love the land. And we did Jordan on that trip, too, if I remember, didn't we? Yes, yes. So we did Israel and the Jordan Extension, and you were a magnificent teacher and very patient with your impetuous student, Michael Easley. For those of you that don't know Dr. Hanna, he has a bizarre, wonderful, delightful, dry sense of humor. So about 10 minutes into this podcast, if you've never heard him, you'll, you know, just give us a vow. Okay, John, first of all, explain Kriegel's publication of why they called this series The Invitation To. I've had more than one person ask me that. Uh, I think they did it uh, fundamentally because of the nature of the book. I wouldn't classify myself as a scholar. I'm scholarly. But my interests are in telling the story of Christianity, not the footnotes, not the minutiae, not the scholastic discussion and opinions. So I think it was 
given that title, uh, because that's what it really is. It's just a general summary identifying the forest and the trees of a topic. So it's, it's quite summarial. And how do you combine 2000 years and more in a volume or two volumes? So it's generalistic in its nature to introduce people who haven't had access serious teaching on that subject. When you started this work, and I guess technically you started it because you're a professor and you're teaching historical theology and different iterations of that title. So when, when did you find out you had a love for history and a love for what I call studying the current events of another time? I, I've always been interested in people, interested in how, why they think, the way they do. I think it's two things. When I when I thought about writing a book like that or volumes like that, you have to do some serious thinking about justification. Uh, there are many very good books out there that survey the same amount of material. So what is the justification? One, I haven't encountered uh, one that reflects technology to the degree that that little book does. Those books do. Uh, the color the presentation, the sidebars. I, I wanted an interactive text that was beyond black and white. Well, let me interrupt so, you there. I, let me interrupt you. I was going to ask you that question because I, I have a reading group. We do a WebEx every Monday with about nine guys, all of whom are much smarter than me. Uh, I learned that, you know, if you're going to go to a fight, pick people that are better at fighting. And uh, we finished Augustine's Confessions, and we did some C.S. Lewis. And then I said, we're doing Dr. John Hanna's history. Lost one, picked up two. You know how that is. But I made the observation to our group that this is not a typical textbook like a, a Paul Johnson tome or an academic treatise that Kriegel or ICC would publish. And so this was part of your idea, was the visualizations, the charts, the color, breaking up the text, because we have a different way of learning and reading today than we did 30 years ago? Yeah, I think it boils down to a basic philosophy of how a person learns. Teaching is one thing. Learning is a different task. And we hope teachers facilitate learning, not always. Theory is, if ideas are... Simply put, illustrated, and endlessly repeated, they will be learned. All of us are about sixth graders in learning. <laughs> that's, that's how we are. So I, I wanted to write a book that would help people uh, understand this in a non-scholastic way. The other motivating, deep motivating reason is when I have read these other textbooks, What's really lacking is the gospel. We have certain convictions about this world, uh, about what's value, what is essential. And for me, in this book, I hope people will see the Lord Jesus. Because he's the subject of history. He's the center of it. He's the beginning of it. He created. He's the end of it. He will gather us to himself, and he's the center of it because he purchased us a help. So I, I wanted to write a history of the gospel. In one of your other books, and I, I think it was the one, Our Legacy, but I'm not positive, you have a great preface where you talk about all the things that have happened to the church 
and through history and maligning and liberalism. And you could probably cite it from memory, but your last line is, against such things, the church of Christ will always prevail. And that's one thing I've appreciated about you as a professor and a friend is you do bring us back to the text. You do bring us back to the gospel. And, I mean, it would be a fun discussion to go down that rabbit trail and say what happened to education, but we're not going to do that. Let's talk about the two volumes. One thing in looking through it, I was intrigued by homeschool and tutorials. This would be a great text because of what you do not only for the sidebars, but I'm just flipping through the epilogues and what I would call sort of the glossary of things. But yeah. you've also got this great section about chapter objectives. So whether yeah. you're teaching in a college, high school, junior high, home school, these are the takeaways that I want you to have. Because these chapters are, well, I'll just show you, of course, our friends can't see it. As I'm reading this, I feel like I should just strike out the parts I don't underline. Because I underline everything, John. I'm like <laughs> underlining the whole thing going, yes, 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 yes. And I have to reread it like three times because I'm a slow student still. But I do retain. But anyway, so this is so, a broader text. Before we yeah, go any further, help people who don't like history. Help people who go, oh, Michael, you're going to talk about history for four or five podcasts Yawn. Well, I would say this. Uh, think about who taught you history. Usually it was a football coach who didn't have much to do in the spring. And the football coach in high school, bless the soul, taught us um, history was a group of facts, which I reject, factor out of which meaning comes. And second, uh, he taught health and hygiene. And he told us that dirt was bad and so How did you know? That was my co <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, I went through that too. Um, so I, I wanted to write a text. If history is either not being taught, our heritage is not being taught, or it's being taught poorly, you can complain, but that is not helpful. We need to supply tools that will help our teachers facilitate learning. So I wrote a teacher text. I wrote a text to help our teachers. And the first thing you need to know, one of my daughters had this history teacher who walk into class. He was also a coach. But he would say to the kid, today, 15 things. First, boom. Two, boom. That's facts. That's not meaning. I wanted to help teachers have a tool that might be useful to them. I wanted to help people who have an interest in history, and I wanted to create interest. Time is the stage in which God is outworking his great plan of redemption. If you don't have a past, you can't understand the present, and you have no hope for the future. So past, present, and future go together. My work is in the past but it's a heritage, uh, it will give us security. It will give us stability in a world that currently is fracturing beyond compare and can easily lead to despair. I mean, I just read of a poorly uh, stewardess on a plane who said to someone, you need a mask on, the person punched her, lost two teeth. Now, that's called anarchy. And we've seen it, COVID has simply perpetuated the isolation, emptiness, and loneliness of people. Breaking out for significance. So you take somebody out. That doesn't make sense to me. 
the the notion that um, if we don't know our history, we repeat the past. Uh, some of these cliches that we think through. John, when history is so full of error, of heretics in the Christian worldview, revisionism, the revision. I have this very bad joke that no one ever gets. The revisionists are the only ones who pretend to know the truth. And, and yet, at the end of the day, how do I trust what I'm reading? Well, I, I think you trust it two ways. First thing you do is you read publishers that have a reputation for credibility. Second, you read writers who work in a guild that can criticize them. A person won't accept criticism. Well, that person is dangerous. So how do I know? Ultimately, we know by a set of assumptions that we cannot prove. That sounds crazy. So the way to understand is to know that you don't understand. Here's my point. All systems of belief begin with unprovable assumptions. I cannot prove that God exists. I can prove that a power exists greater than all the effects I see, but I can't prove that that's God. That, that's a faith statement. And that the second assumption we have is that that God who exists has revealed himself in the volume of a book edited by the Spirit of God. I cannot prove either one. You don't use a source through the source. So how can I argue that I'm right? I think the answer is this. All systems of belief are address the issue of dysfunction. It describes the nature of dysfunction, and it describes the remedy. Does Christianity, biblical Christianity, describe the dilemma of mankind? I, I think it does. But it also provides hope. And that is why we're entitled to believe Christianity. I'm entitled to it because it explains tragedy and gives hope. Hope is the great word. I can't prove it. If I could, we wouldn't call it faith. So the question is not, can I prove it? The question is, does it bring hope? Uh, does it explain the world I see around me and account for what I see? Five Holocausts in the last uh, century. We've seen the advance of technology that promised us an advance of character. But we have seen technological advantages without that. And then we have Holocaust and tragedy. I'm passionate about that. I certainly believe that Christianity is true. I certainly believe that God exists. I certainly believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for us. Can I prove it? Now, what does prove mean? Prove means that it's more reasonable to believe it than it's not. I studied Freud. I studied Lorenz. I studied Nietzsche. Throw all those things together, they're doing the same thing. Nietzsche, of course, said there's no hope. But most often hope, even Marx, has it worked? No, it hasn't worked. Has Christianity worked? Yes, but not ultimately, because ultimately hasn't come. We walk by faith. So the question of validity is a question of trustworthiness in the object of faith. Do we have a right? Or are we entitled to believe in Jesus? I think it's the greatest fact in all the world. 
In in your years of study and teaching and incoming students and how culture's changed just in your lifetime as a professor, and I understand your point about you're not a scholar in the sense that you're not writing in a debating citation, marshalling forth, these are the 10 arguments why, and this is where I go, yet you're still a scholar in my book. But when you look at the at how culture's changed in your years of teaching, have you ever seen a time where it's not just vitriolic, John, it's... It's soundbite, uh, Instagram, short information that's taken as truth vis-a-vis, let's study, let's talk about this, let's have a discussion, let's read some articles and think through it. Technology has advanced to the place where we have freedom without responsibility. Uh, So people are free to say anything. They're not accountable to anyone. It's empty. So I think what has happened is that For 350 years, Western Europeans, including Americans, have been enamored with the power and sufficiency of progress and intellectualism. I think we saw, beginning in the early 20th century, but certainly after World War II, a collapse of those assumptions. It didn't bring us peace. I mean, it brought us money, but I always think... uh, my dad supplied our needs, but he didn't play baseball with me. That's tragic. What is value? Is value accumulation? Is it see how big a garage sale you can have, the kids can have when you die? That's crazy. Christianity is not about stuff. It is about relationships, profound relationships. And that rises above socioeconomic Let's let's jump in. Let's jump into your book because I talk about these rabbit trails with you all day. But I, I do want to help folks understand why they need to buy these two texts. And and I would encourage our friends. Reading is a lost art. If you listen to this podcast, you know how important I believe reading the scripture is and reading supplemental material. One of my big frustrations, John, is we don't know American history. We certainly don't know biblical history. And so in the first volume, you entitled An Invitation to Church History World, you start out in your first chapter giving some great overviews about how you're doing this and the argumentation. I want to jump to why is the Renaissance, why is Enlightenment, why are these the time periods you chose to begin this discussion? Okay, because uh, the issue is, it raises the question, what are the fundamental assumptions of an era out of which people make decisions and shape their lives. You can see it radically change. When Christianity came to dominate the Roman Empire, there was a turn from the gods to God, the God, monotheism. In other words, what Christianity argued is that if you want hope, if you want direction in life, you must turn outside yourself. You must not look out, certainly not look in, you must look up. And that understanding dominates forth to, oh really, the 17th century. People looked outside. I would argue that we didn't understand that the kingdom wouldn't come until the king does. And so following the great 30 years war in which a third of Germany's population was destroyed. People began to say, Roman Catholicism 
and Protestantism share the same problem. They don't bring peace to the world. Therefore, turning outside of ourselves is been the great lie of the centuries of the church. We need to turn in, into ourselves. The revelation is not in a book, it's inside. But where is it inside? The answers were two. Intellectualism, the mind, so the university, and it did quite well, put a man on the moon, etc. But it hasn't brought peace to the world. Christianity does not promise peace in this world. It promises peace in the world to come. And that search for intellectualism uh, as the answer to our problems, more degrees, science, technology, all fell apart in the 20th century. Previously, you can see it in the Impressionists in France, but we lost faith in intellectualism. Where do you turn if you've lost faith in external authority or reason? You turn to the sovereign self. And the sovereign self describes 21st century America, in which we're now said there is no truth, there are only truths. Your truth is as good as my truth. And, and sin is gone except for the sin of intolerance. Intolerance is now the sin. As defined um, by the group that feels untolerated. That's right. It's exactly right. I, I think increasingly in this country, Christianity is being not tolerated. Well, I, I've often said that Christianity is the last thing you can vilify without fear of consequence. Because you vilify Islam, you vilify LGBTQA, you vilify fill in the blank, you're going to have a maelstrom to deal with. You can vilify Christianity and make it even easier. You can vilify old white Christian guys like you and me without any fear of repercussion. <laughs> That's right. Um, one would say it's very sad, but it, it'll pass because a radical subjective individualism leads to anarchy. The way to solve problems in our culture is very simple. Have something more precious than the delight of your problems. So it is. That's why we preach Christ crucified. We believe if you really know him, it's going to help you a lot. Let's jump to uh, the way you divide it. And I'm saying you, but you, you have used this as somewhat of a framework, ancient, medieval, modern, and postmodern. You give some brackets on those, AD 33 to 600 for ancient, medieval up to 1500, modern 17 to 1900, and that would be the Reformation and Renaissance and Enlightenment periods, and then postmodern. And I want to ask you a little bit later about post-postmodernity. So we talk about these things. John, help the person who doesn't remember their history too well. What's <laughs> happening in these four segments in a couple okay. sentences? Yeah, it's very easy. The ancient period is denominated by the dominance of the Western Roman Empire and the beginning of the advent of Christ. So normally 33 is what we date our Lord's crucifixion. And about 60, these dates are arbitrary, just depends on criteria. I chose 600, as most of the books do, because it uh, during the ancient period, the Roman Empire dominated the geopolitical sphere. That collapsed. So people trusted the empire 
they trusted the gods that collapsed. When it collapsed, and the dates vary for 84, I, I like to round them off, so who remembers numbers but me. About the year 600, you have the coming of the power of the church that replaces the state to give security. And so the middle period, we call it a medieval period, as a 16th century definition or nomenclature, as a period where the church is dominant. It is the great era, in a way, of Christianity, although it obviously failed. So we usually date medieval from 600 to 1500, rounding off the date, because we see Martin Luther, in other words, uh, the Renaissance emerges in the 13-1400s. What was the Renaissance? It was a quest for knowledge, for knowledge's sake, which is not bad. Uh, there's nothing wrong with knowledge for knowledge's sake. The question is, what are the sources one consults for knowledge for knowledge's sake? The medieval period trusted the church, and I think the church failed. It's incorrect. So the reformers turned outward but they turned outward to the Bible. You know, Luther said it, uh, my conscience is bound to the word of God. So Luther turned inward to his conscience, but his conscience told him the Bible was true. So that's the great mark of Protestantism. The modern period usually begins about 1750, we would say, arbitrary date. The emphasis there is not the conscience, as it relates to the Holy Scriptures, but the mind separated from the Bible. Intellectualism interpreted the Bible. So whatever is true has to make sense. But what is sense? All that sense is, is it's analogical. It's, it's observation of repetition. That's all it is. If the observation of repetition is all material, because you can't see the immaterial, it doesn't take long for Nietzsche to deny that the immaterial doesn't exist. It defies the criteria you invented. And the postmodern period, I think, is a wonderful period in a way. It scrapped the optimism of rationalism, but it has nothing in its place but the anarchy of individualism, which I think will lead to totalitarianism. Uh, because... How do you control rebellious people? Our government is predicated on the assumption that we will act unselfishly and quickly. Uh, those two things are wrong. So how does government control the potential of anarchy? By the imposition of new law. We have the largest prison population of any country. If people give up their liberty to act selfishly, so True liberty is not the ability to do what you want. It's the ability to conform to more standards. That standard is defined by our Constitution. Uh, but for us, it's defined by character. And, and, and we'll get to that more on our second interview on the invitation to church history in America. Let, let me let me ask you a question about the Reformation. Because I, and, and you know, from our days in seminary when you forced me to read these things to post-seminary where I enjoyed reading these things. The reformers were not trying to start a reformation. They were trying to reform the Catholic Church, correct? I would say 
the church remained orthodox. You could find the gospel for over 1,200 years. Even when we had a pope, we could find the gospel. But about the year 1,200, the reformers would say 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council, when the Lord's table was defined as an unbloodied act of granting forgiveness, which denigrates the finality of the atonement. The church, I, I would say between 1200 and 1500, the church began to teach diverse opposite things about the gospel. When you come to 1500, roughly, Roman Catholics are saying there's something wrong with our church. Protestants are saying there's something wrong with our church. If you don't agree on what's wrong, you do not agree on how to resolve it. So, Roman Catholicism is an attempt to restore the integrity of the church, but they define the church morally. We were an attempt, are an attempt, to redefine the church, but we did it theologically. In other words, Roman Catholicism ultimately argues that God is impressed with our morality. We would argue God's standard is himself. It is not relativity. So no one meets the standard. But Christ did. But we're enamored with Jesus. Give us the perhaps the differentiation with because you, you mentioned Western several times now, Western versus Eastern. And I remember vividly seeing this. I mean, you read about it, but we were in Israel one time and the Eastern Orthodox came down to the Church of the Sepulchre and looked like a scene out of a Star Wars movie. This little man in a in a black uh, robe and everyone following him in, in line in perfect order and cadence, and it parted all of the other Jews, Gentiles, Arabs, Catholics. We all had to leave while this guy came in. Yeah. And I remember telling our group, you get to see something pretty interesting, metaphorically and literally, that the Eastern Orthodox are now ruling. <laughs> but but he help us understand Eastern Orthodox in a paragraph or so. Okay. The Western Roman Empire fell its capital, Rome, in, uh, depending on the date, say 500. But that did not destroy the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire continued for millennium, but its capital became Constantinople. Constantinople fell in uh, 1452 to the Islamic faith. When we say Eastern Orthodoxy, we mean a group of churches in the East defined nationalistically, 15 of them, Serbian Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, uh, Antiochian Orthodox Church, their national identities were in the medieval period from Constantinople, the gospel spread. So there's the Roman Catholic Church, there's the Protestant churches, and there are the Orthodox churches. The Orthodox churches are Eastern, dominated from Constantinople. Serbians, Antiochians, we always uh, are commonly in the West, we would say the Greek Orthodox Church, but that's one national right. entity. They tip their hat to the patriarch of Constantinople, but they do so because it's the oldest. It was founded by Constantine. But on paper, each of these 15 or 14 national entities called Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, it sounds like a mosquito bite. It, they're called audiocephalites. <laughs> uh, it means they're independent. They're, they're sovereignly independent. 
but they recognize the final, they don't have a quote, but they recognize the history and tradition of Constantinople. So the patriarch of Constantinople tends to have a little influence the others. When, when you grow up in a, in a world, whether it's Islam or Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, you and I have been to the Greek islands with the so-called Journeys of Paul trip. There's one church, quote-unquote one, and uh, Islam is, uh, is a theocracy of a kind, I guess one could argue. If all you ever know is what they have taught you and told you, and you look at the grand scope of history, how does the gospel transcend this, John? I think it transcends it, because if the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of a person to the beauty of the Savior, it changes the whole world. It may not change their, their attendance at a church. But it certainly immediately just fills it with meaning. We meet Roman Catholics that know the Lord Jesus. We meet Protestants that do. We meet Orthodox people that do. I, I would say the chances of finding it are better in the Protestant churches. <laughs> in other words, we make our choices predicated upon the highest object of our pleasure. Whether you're saved or lost. If that highest object becomes the Lord Jesus, then there is inherently a change of your nature, change of your priorities. It's called conversion. It doesn't come with an ecclesiastical label. It, it, it comes from heaven. And we are people that really believe not to be arrogant or anything like that because we don't have anything we haven't been given is that we are representing the teachings of Scripture clearer than others. Not perfect, but we believe we got Jesus right. We believe... <laughs> I <that> hope so. <laughs> that, yeah, we got him right. I mean, it's a subtle thing. We got, yeah, we met the big guy in the go. sky. Um, and he died for me. He died in my place. And that changes... Everyone lives out their priorities. So the issue is all priorities are objects. What's your highest object? That should determine your priorities and your priorities. Let's, let, let, me, let me jump ahead to this phrase that you and I are very familiar with, but people don't understand the word church fathers and why that is important to get a basic understanding of what we mean. Well, church fathers can mean several things. It can mean any writer in the history of the church who represents the church in some way. Typically, we, we use the word church father to refer to the earliest writers of the first several centuries. And what they did for us is that they are the first to help us understand the apostolic writings and apply it to church life. How do you live? I mean, the great question of the first century Christians, I think, was what is our relationship to the Mosaic regulations of our foundation in Judaism? But in the second century and third century, there's a different question. And that question is, how do we live in a radically pagan, unfriendly society? And so, depending on the question of the time, determines your emphasis as you read Holy Scripture. Uh, we tend to go to the 16th century where the gospel became very clear and criticize the early centuries because it wasn't, but they didn't have the same question. 
The question determines the power. All right, let me let me ask you about Augustine, perhaps after the Apostle Paul and the closure of the New Testament and the canon of Scripture and the inspired authors that we look at. I've been teaching through books of the Bible one Sunday at a time. And I was struck in 1 John when he says that you have fellowship with us and also with the Father. And it, it put me on my heels the first time I read that when I was a teenager going, wait a minute. I thought it would have fellowship with the Father, and then I get fellowship with Him. But He's very intentional to say the apostolic authority of what we call this corpus of the New Testament is the foundation of your faith, right? And so, what He's arguing yeah, there after that, we're looking at Augustine because he's such a loud, strong, brilliant figure with a very checkered life, by the way. Oh yeah, when he's right, he's right, and blesses us for <laughs> centuries, and we offer truth. <laughs> That's dominant people. Uh, but time has a way to judge the best and good and the worst and all. So else. give me <laughs> – is that some shot at me or you? That's a <laughs> oh, that's a no, I know. So, Augustine, uh, give me give me two or three, again, thinking of people that haven't read Confessions or City of God, give us two or three uh, observations about why he's such a seminal figure. Oh, I think he's a seminal figure fundamentally, because he, he influenced both the Protestant tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition. We, both of us claim him as our heroes, but we claim him for different reasons. Uh, why, do we, why do you and I like Augustine? He understood the absolute light of mankind. In other words, your understanding of, human, of the human problem will determine the solution because you will fix the solution to the problem. And therefore, Augustine argued for the absolute necessity of grace. And he argued also in the absolute, if grace is discriminatory, how does it work? And uh, he gave us the doctrine of, uh, emphasized the doctrine of predestination. That's how it worked. The medieval church forgot predestination. They forgot light and they forgot grace and turned it into endeavor. I think they did it for a good reason, to help people. People like rules. They like uh, quantifiable program events. And I think the church made the mistake of telling people that if they did this and that, they would have forgiveness of sins. No, so we appreciate Augustine for the marvelous doctrine of grace and the awful blight of human nature. It sounds like the Apostle Paul. We do have a problem with Augustine in his definition of sin as the absence of righteousness. It, it's more than that. It's guilt. It's a positive as well as a negative. Uh, we have problems with Augustine in his understanding of justification as a process. And he undermined us in its uh, definitive, once-for-all, timeless event. We have been justified, we are being justified, and we shall be justified. All three are true. The tendency of medievalism was to turn sanctification into justification. Sanctification is just progressive justification. It's all Make We have known. just a few moments to cover the rest of world history. So, <laughs> so Dr. Hannah, 
I, there's about 15 other questions I want to ask you, but one thing I was I loved about your book is when you talk about the different areas of Reformation within, let me just call it different segments, Catholicism, even the Reformation proper, from Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Calvin, and how they had different nuances. And, and Luther was no fan of some of these guys when they would veer off oh, no. a little bit left or right of him. And so let me, let me ask it this way, John, when you step back and you're teaching a class at at your church, or maybe a, a not a seminary class, but a class of men and women who want to sit and ask roundabout questions about church history and world history, help me get a broad stroke of how these different factions, because it was over Lord's Supper, it was over baptism, it was over the security of the believer, eternal security of the believer, all these things, the loss of salvation. Give me, give me a synopsis of how you look at these and how the average person needs to think about them before they delve into your book? I think the, the answer is, how do you account for discontinuity? How do you account for hostility? Uh, I think you account for hostility among believers because redemption doesn't cure human nature. We are all prejudiced. How are we prejudiced? We're prejudiced by our background. The things that you and I do not doubt, but certainly just assume, dominate us. And remember, each of these reformers, whether you're in Geneva or Zurich or Germany in Wittenberg, they answer the issues of their time. What was Luther's great passion? It was uh, this doctrine of declarative forgiveness, non-experiential, passive gift of God. Was that Calvin's question? I don't think so. Alvin's question, that, that had been settled. He's second generation. His question was, how do you walk with God? How do you grow the church? The Arminian question, the next century that divides Calvinists, what's the great issue of the day? The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is blowing across Holland. How do you preserve Christianity? Arminius and others felt that if you weakened inability, you could preserve responsibility. So the great question is for all of us, how do you have responsibility without inability? The Arminians simply did not think the Calvinists had a good answer for that. So they weakened anthropology. If you weaken anthropology, you weaken security. So these things go circles in a circle. It's sort of fun to watch. So it really boils down to this. What questions... Can you live without having an answer? And what questions are so important to you that you must have an answer? That's going to shape your understanding. It's going to shape how you organize verses and how you neglect others. Unfortunately, because redemption doesn't cure human nature, how we react to others who are our friends is deplorable sometimes. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to help people come to know Jesus and build his church. See, you, you, you're more optimistic. My presuppositions lead me to believe they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an optimist at no, the bottom you're not. of no, I'm you're a realist. Not. You're not an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> I know you better than that. Give me a 25 to 50 word synopsis on an invitation to church history world. Oh, it is a description of the progress of the gospel 
the diffusion of the gospel among the nations over uh, the last 2,000 years. That's good. Yeah, in the world, history will help you to understand the contemporary question, why? Why do things look the way they do? Why does my pastor talk the way he does? Why does the pastor down the street talk differently? That'll help you understand that. Dr. John Hanna, author, we're talking about the two most current books, Church History in the World and Church History in America, which we're going to pick up on our next podcast. Thanks, John, for being with us for this first program. And we look forward to having you answer all my questions on the next segment. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.